Well, good morning again. How's everyone doing today? You guys, you're looking good. You're looking good. Uh, good to have you here. Um, if you weren't here when I came before, my name's Mike, one of the pastors, and we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. I encourage you to take that out. And uh, we're going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited about what you're doing week after week. God, we're sensing your presence coming, the people you're bringing, the stories that are being told. Of, of you just meeting us in really supernatural ways, pulling us out of our past, launching us into our future. And God, as we continue this series talking about what does it look like to live life on mission, we pray that today will be the next step in our journey and that you'd really meet us and speak and transform us and change us and we would walk with you in, in newness, uh, a whole new life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today on a battlefield. And uh, he is nervous. Uh, he's in charge of the forces. They are outmanned. They're outgunned. Uh, they have inferior troops, inferior troop size. And uh, he's nervous. They've been waiting here for the battle to engage about a week. Uh, he, it hasn't yet been, happened yet, but he knows it's coming. Uh, his men are getting more nervous with each passing day. They, uh, some are even starting to defect. And he knows as a leader, man, I got to do something he senses it's not right time. It's like he needs to wait some more, but, but he's just, uh, he doesn't know what to do. And he starts to panic. And so in the midst of all that, he makes a decision to move forward, pull the trigger, get this, things on the, get this thing going. But little does he know that this decision is going to be a faithful decision that is going to impact the rest of his life. Well, today we're uh, continuing a series that we've been in now uh, for the last four weeks. For those of you who are brand new, special welcome to you. Uh, the series is called Sent, uh, Life on Mission. It's a study of a, one of the books in the New Testament in our Bible. It's uh, one of the longer books called the book of Acts. Uh, the author is a man named Luke. He's, he's very bright, well-educated, great writer. Uh, he's a physician by training. He's a close friend of the personal, uh, a, a personal friend of the Apostle Paul, uh, but he's also really intrigued by the whole movement of Jesus, and he's done some careful research to document the, the movement of Jesus, and he's, he's written in two volumes designed to be read together, kind of like season one, season two of a mini-series. Uh, and, and so the season one is about, it's called the Gospel of Luke. It covers the life of Jesus. Season two is about the, the launch of his movement that starts in uh, Jerusalem after his death and resurrection. Over the next 30 years, we'll spread throughout the Roman Empire all the way to Rome. And so, uh, like I said, I've compared this to uh, like a, a two-season drama on TV designed to be watched together. So many times to understand season two, actually you have to go back into the season one, Luke, to get some background. But today we come to uh, a, a very important couple, uh, couple of events that happen between the ascension of Jesus, we talked about last week, to the coming of the Spirit that we'll talk about next week. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. There in your note sheet, you have a section called Sent, uh, Waiting, subtitle Waiting. And uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 12. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. And so uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, The apostles uh, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So if you've been to Jerusalem, right outside the city gates is this, this hill about three-quarter of a mile away. Uh, I think about a 15-minute walk to walk from the top down and up uh, called the Mount of Olives. So Jesus ascends from there. And we saw this last week that 
Uh, Jesus uh, gives his final instructions to his followers. He ascends, hovercrafts up, disappears in the cloud. We talked about that. Uh, and he goes into the presence of God, as we learned last week, to do two things. He's crowned king over all creation. That's why we call him Lord Jesus. And to make atonement for our sins. He's our high priest. So we, we, we dealt with that. But before he, he left, he said, now, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Don't leave without him. Go back, and I want you to wait. Now, here's the thing. Often we read the Bible, we've read, we, and we know the end of the story. And so we read it as if they knew the end of the story. But they didn't know the end of the story. He told them to go back and wait. Well, how long? Well, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a horrible translation. In the Greek, what it actually says is that after not many days, you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So how long is that? Not many days. I mean, the guy who's telling you this is the guy who said, I'm coming back soon, and it's been 2,000 years. <laughs> the guy who's telling you this is like, remember what you know, Peter said, you know, hey, with God, one day is like 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is like a day? Like, how long is this, right? So you're about like you're waiting, you're like day three. Hey, does it seem like not too many days to you? <laughs> yeah, it seems like not too many days. Yeah, I don't know, you know, day five. Seems like not too many days. Yeah, I don't know, it's Jesus. You know, he's always saying things weird. Hard to understand, I don't know, you know. Pretty soon, like it's day seven. Do you think like not many days is more than a week? Like, would you say? Right? So I want you to catch this because in our life, when God has us in the waiting room, in our lives, hey, it, life would be so much easier if we knew when the waiting was coming to an end, right? Like when you lose your job and you're praying to God to provide a job, if God came and said, hey, in six months, you're going to have an amazing job, he'd say, awesome, I got a six-month vacation. <laughs> but we don't know, so at month five, we're going, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Like if God came to you and said, in two years, your financial situation's going to turn around, you're going to pay off all your debt, I'm going to bless you, you're going to be able to buy that home you've been praying for for years. You go, awesome, right? But we don't know that. When you say, I've been praying for my son or daughter to come to Christ for five years. If God said, you know, in two years, I'm going to bring four people in their life that are going to be really legitimate Christians. They're going to help shape their, their hearts and their attitudes, and they're going to bring them to me. And then those four people are going to help disciple them, and, and I've got a calling on their life, and they're going to go into ministry because of those four people. We go, awesome. Now, wait for two years for that. See, the hard thing about waiting is we don't know how long. And what I want you to get is in their mindset, Jesus said not many days. They don't know how long. And so there's waiting. And so Luke wants to tell us like what happened during that time of waiting. And so we know now it was like seven to ten days. I'll tell you how we know that later. But they didn't know that. And so anyway, so they, they return. And so he's going to tell us that in verse 13 that when they arrive, they go upstairs to a room where they're staying. And we're going to find out later there's about 120 people there. And so, so it's a very large room. And he's going, to, he's going to tell us some of the VIPs, some of the people there that, you know, we should know that are there. He's going to start with the apostles. Now, back in season one of Luke, in chapter six, uh, Jesus, uh, we're told that Jesus, after a night of prayer, that out of all the disciples that he had, he selected 12 to be apostles. Now, catch this, that number 12 is no accident. Have you ever thought about that? Like, you know, why do you choose 12? Why not 7, 10, 15, you know? 
Why the 12? Well, because what's happening is in the bigger story God's telling, God is relaunching the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has been in rebellion. They're going to reject the Messiah. But this new Israel being born out of the old Israel is going to be started with like 12 tribes, 12 leaders, right? 12 apostles. When we come to Jesus, we become part of this new Israel, right? We become the Israel of God. And so there has to be 12. And so Jesus selects 12. And of course, at this point in time, after the resurrection of Jesus, there's only 11 left, right? Because one guy is defected. His name's Judas. We don't know a lot about him if all we've read is season one of Luke. Because in season one of Luke, Judas defects. He leads the Roman guards and the, and the Jewish high priests and all the top leaders. He leads them to arrest Jesus. And we don't know what happens to him. They don't have their whole Bible back then. They don't have the Gospel of Matthew back then. And so they said, you know, season one, we know that Judas was the defector, the betrayer, but we don't know what happened. And so what we do know, there's only 11. And so he's going to give us the names of the 11 here. And they're the same 11 as before in Luke chapter 6, just a little different order. So that those present were Peter, James, and John. So this is a big three, the inner circle. There's Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother. Uh, Philip and Thomas. Remember, Thomas is a guy after the resurrection. No way I believe in this resurrection. This is crazy. Unless I see Jesus, see his hands, the holes in his hands, put my, put my, uh, my, my hand in his side where the wound of the spear went in. I'm not buying it. So he's, he's changed his mind now. So anyway, because <laughs> um, he did that. And so then there's Bartholomew, and there's Matthew. Matthew, of course, writes the Gospel of Matthew. James, son of Alphaeus, different James. Simon the Zealot. Later, the Zealot party became kind of an armed resistance freedom fighter movement. So he was early on in that. And then Judas, son of James, different Judas. And so th- these 11 were there, and they're all joined together constantly in prayer. So notice this. One of the things, this will become important, we'll talk about it later. One of the things they did during this time of waiting is they really were constantly in prayer. They were really seeking God in prayer. Not just a little prayer, but a lot of prayer. And there's also some women there. And so we're told in volume one, Season one of Luke, that back in chapter eight, there were several women who would travel with a band of brothers, Jesus, and they would kind of uh, help minister to them, and they would uh, actually help financially fund the ministry of Jesus. And so, one of those that you're probably familiar with is Mary Magdalene, but there's several mentioned. We get to chapter 23, there were several women at the cross who were there watching the execution from a distance. Luke told us that in season one, and I'm sure those women were there. Uh, we know from the Gospel of John that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, she was there. On the resurrection morning, there's several women in Luke's gospel, last episode, chapter 24, that were there. He named them. I'm sure these are all some of the women that were there. And so he says there were some, some key women there. And uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And catch this, his brothers were there. Now, we know from the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John that Jesus was the oldest of at least seven kids. Okay? Big family. And, uh, and so we're also told from the gospel of John that Jesus' brothers didn't buy into him prior to the resurrection. Um, it's a little tough to believe your big brother is God. Um, <laughs> a lot of big brothers act like they're God. Um, I know, I'm a big brother, and my sisters tell me I act like God. But anyway, uh, but you know, you don't really, it's really hard to believe. But after the resurrection, we're told at least one of those brothers, a guy named James, actually saw Jesus and he changed his mind. I guess you are God. And so, uh, Apparently, we don't know that all the brothers saw him or just James saw him, but uh, they, they all bought in, right? And so it's, and so it's interesting. James goes on, this, this James, the, the brother, he goes on to be the leader of the church of Jerusalem, uh, the top leader. And uh, he will write the book of James in the, in the New Testament. And so uh, these guys go on to be great leaders in the early church. So then, uh, and so, so they're there in prayer, all right? So they're there praying, waiting on God. Now, what else happens? Well, uh, Luke's going to tell us about another important event that happens during this time of waiting. 
And if you, you know, if you've not really thought about this, this is one of those ones you read through, actually go, this is kind of boring. Why are they even telling us this? This doesn't seem like it would deserve a whole, you know, print column, right? Um, but it's very important because remember I said, there's how many apostles are left at this point? 11. Okay, so there's 11, you're launching the new Israel. Uh, it doesn't work with 11, right? You need 12. You need 12 apostles. And so they're going to need to replace Judas. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, there's a couple messianic psalms. Uh, psalm 69, Psalm 109. And what I believe, and we'll talk about why later, but you know, after the resurrection, we know one of the things Jesus did is he did Bible studies with his men. He took them back to the Old Testament and showed them all the, the whole story of the Bible. It's all leading up to him. He's the, key, he's the hero. And he, he took them back to all the prophecies. And, and we're told in the, in the, uh, earlier in Acts that during the 40 days, he talked about the kingdom of God. And so he seems to be doing a lot of Bible study with them. Sometimes you wonder, how do the apostles get so smart? Right? Like you wonder, when you read through the book of Acts, they're always quoting from the Old Testament and saying, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, how they learn that? Well, I believe they learned it during the 40 days when Jesus was doing the Bible study. We'll see that later on today. But uh, in, in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, they're both messianic psalms. And in these psalms, uh, there's a prediction that's made that Judas will betray Jesus and that therefore they need to replace him. And so Luke wants to tell us how this happens because the apostles, their primary job description is to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He was really alive. So you need the full complement of the 12. One's gone. We need to replace him. Scripture foresaw this. Scripture uh, prophesied this. And so he's going to go ahead and tell us how this happened, how they selected this number 12 guy. But in the midst of it, he needs to tell us what happened to Judas. Because if you're reading volume one of Luke, and that's all you had, all you know is that Judas defected, betrayed you. You don't know what happened. And so he's going to tell us what happened. Now remember, as Peter gets up to give this speech to the 120, they all know what happened to Judas. They were there. So this is a parenthesis, what I would call a sidebar, where he's talking to us as the reader, because we don't know. That's why in your Bible it's going to be in parentheses, right? So let's talk about Judas for a second. We are having two descriptions of what happened to Judas in Matthew 26 and in Acts 1. So Matthew 26, is this what happened to Judas? Judas, after he betrays Jesus for about a month's salary, he is filled with remorse. He goes back to the temple priests and he says, hey, I have betrayed innocent blood. Here's your money back. He said, we don't want your money. It's blood money. It's tainted money. We can't put it back in the temple treasury. Keep your money. He says, forget it. I don't want the money. He throws it down, and he leaves and go hangs himself. Okay? That's their story. That's, that's Matthew's story. Acts' story reads a little differently, right? So you're going to have to put the two stories together to see how they work out. In Acts, what it basically says is that, um, that the, oh, by the way, in Matthew, it says that the priests took the money and went and bought a field. Uh, in Acts, what it says is that Luke bought a field, I mean that uh, Judas bought a field, and that he fell down there and his intestines came out. Okay? Which is why this is rated M for mature audiences. Right? <laughs> when you're reading the Bible, hot tip, use your imagination. Right? You need to see those intestines coming out. Right? So, like, otherwise, you're missing the whole point, the judgment of God at the bottom. So anyway, so as you put these two accounts together, it would appear that this is what has happened. 
Judas goes back. She says, I don't want the money. They say, keep the money. It's your money. We don't want the money back. He throws it down. They're like, what do we do with this money? We can't put it in the temple treasury. We'll go out and we'll buy a field in Judas's name. It technically belongs to him. However it worked out, Judas now has his field. He goes out on the field, hangs himself as he's hanging there in his field after days of hanging or whatever, either the rope breaks, the, the branch breaks, or his body just decays, and it comes apart, and intestines come out. And so now, however it happens, everyone in Jerusalem knows this story, and they call this field a keldama, which means field of blood. So this episode in Luke, I'm calling field of blood. All right, so that's the story. So there we go. So in those days, verse 15, Peter stands up among the believers. It's a group of about 120. And he says, brothers and sisters, the scripture, and he's talking about Psalm 69, Psalm 109. We'll get to that in a minute. The scripture had to be fulfilled where the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. I want you to catch this. For Jesus and for the apostles, the scripture was the word of God. If you say the life of Jesus, you say the apostles, for them, the scripture is not just a natural book. It is a supernatural book breathed by the Holy Spirit through human authors. And so for them, Scripture is highest authority. That's why Jesus says in John 10, he says, the Scripture cannot be broken. That's why over and over he says, the Scripture has to be fulfilled. And so, so here's what Peter's saying. He says, he says, brothers and sisters, verse 16, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. If God said it in his word, it will come true. It had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David, the human author, concerning Judas. He's saying that, the scriptures predicted the defection of Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. We read about that in series one, volume one of Luke. And so he said, he was one of our number. He shared in our ministry. And now comes the sidebar, notice the parentheses, with the payment that Judas received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. Now we're told Matthew that, that the priest bought the field technically, but it must have been in Judas's name. It was his money. And there he fell headlong, this would apparently be after he hung himself. His body burst open. All his intestines spilled out. And everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field, in their language, a keldama, which means fill the blood. Okay? So sidebar is closed. Now we know what happened to Judas, because we've been wondering. Back to Peter, speaking to the audience. For, said Peter, it's written in the book of Psalms. He's going to quote Psalm 69 first and Psalm 109. May his place, referring to, to, to Judas, may his place be deserted. Let no one dwell in it. So no one's going to dwell in this piece of land. It's a cemetery now. Only dead people go there. And may another take his place of leadership, that we have to replace his 12th apostle. He says, so based on what Scripture says, he says it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning with John's baptism. So back in season one, First thing that happens, the ministry of Jesus is launched with the baptism of John the Baptist. He says, we, we have to have someone who's going to witness to the whole thing. He was there from the very beginning, with the, John's baptism, to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, you know, last week, ascension, for, for, their, uh, for one of these must become a witness of the resurrection. So what's the job description of an apostle? Well, part of the primary job description is you knew Jesus personally. You heard Jesus teach 
personally. You watched the miracles personally. When he, met, when he fed the 5,000, you were there. When he walked on water, you were there. When Jesus talked, you were there. When you had questions, you were there. When he rose from the dead, you were there. You had dinner with Jesus. You touched Jesus. This resurrection is not a myth. You personally experienced him. That is job description for an apostle. This is why the apostle Paul, who didn't travel with Jesus, will later say, I am an apostle. And in 1 Corinthians 9, I believe it is, he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Because he saw him later on the road to Damascus. See, it's part of the job description of an apostle. You know what you're talking about. You were there. And so, so Peter says, we gotta, this guy's got to meet the criteria of an apostle. And so he says, so they nominated two guys. It might have been the only two that met the criteria. One guy's named Joseph called Barsabbas. That's his Jewish name, son of the Sabbath. Uh, he's also known by his Roman name, Justice. And then a guy named Matthias, right? So then they prayed and they said, Lord. Now remember, who chose the first 12 apostles? Jesus. So who has to choose the replacement? Jesus. So not, their job is not to take a vote. Their job is to ask Jesus to identify. So they're praying to Jesus. says, Lord Jesus, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs, which is a nice way of saying hell. So then verse 26. <laughs> so then, they, in fact, that's a great thing, you know. Like, no one has to know what you're talking about. I'm just praying for my boss. He goes where he belongs. No, just kidding. All right, so, just kidding. All right, so 26. So they cast lots. Now, this is interesting. We will never see this again after the Holy Spirit comes. Next week, we will never see the early church say, what should we do, God? Guide us in casting lots after this, when the Spirit comes. But in the Old Testament, this was a common way of discerning God's will. In Proverbs 16, it says the, the lot is cast in the lap by man, but it's God decides how it comes out. You'll see it many times in the Old Testament. God leads his people by this. And so they cast lots. The lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So, so what's happening is that these apostles now, they come back from, from, from the ascension. Jesus tells them to wait. They don't know how long it's going to be. And during this time, what are they doing? They're seeking God in prayer. And they're, they're looking to scripture. Is there anything we need to do during this time to be prepared for the future? And so today I want to talk to you about waiting on God. Next, time we'll, next week we'll come back to the Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the huge main event, the book of Acts. But today I want to talk to you about this issue of waiting on God. And here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest in our lives, if you want to experience God's preferred future for your life, if you want to go on mission, live life on mission with God, one of the most important and difficult spiritual skills to master is to learn how to wait on God. One of the things that we do all the time, we get into trouble, is we get ahead of God's leadership. We get impatient, and so we strike out on our own, and it leads to frustration and failure. One of the most important lessons in life, if you want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, you want to travel with Jesus, you want to move into his preferred future for your life, you want to be used of God, one of the most important lessons to learn is to live life under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and to wait on God. Uh, we see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus was a man who lived waiting on God. You go through the Gospel of John. We studied this as elders a couple weeks ago. You know, Jesus said, hey, my work is not my own. He said, I only do what I see the Father showing me. He said, my teaching is not my own. He said in John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and carry out his, his work. Uh, he said, I do nothing of my own initiative. 
In John 12, what I teach and how I teach, it's not my own. It's from the Father. He used to John chapter 17, the end of his life, he said, I finished the work you gave me to do. Jesus is a model of a man who waited on God. And if we're going to be Jesus followers, if we're going to experience his plan for our life, it's one of those critical lessons in life to learn how to wait on God. So I want to make three statements about waiting on God that follow out of this passage and so uh, there in your note sheet is a section called Scent, uh, Learning to Wait. And number one is what I've just been talking about, that waiting is essential. That, again, if you want to experience God's plan for your life, you have to learn how to wait on God. And this is hard, isn't it? That uh, anyone want to tell me that waiting on God is easy? Like, this is hard. And we're just so independent, wired, like we want to run off. But let me tell you a story we started the day with. We started the day with the story of this commander in battle. You probably didn't recognize it because I did my best to disguise it. Uh, it's the story of King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was anointed by God through the prophet Samuel. Samuel said, God's called you to be king. Didn't even want the job initially. But he did really well. First, about the first 10 years, he did really well. And here's how it worked. God would talk to Samuel. Samuel would talk to Saul. And so as long as God's speaking to Samuel, and as long as Saul's listening to Samuel, things are going well. First 10 years. About 10 years into his reign, they face a major national crisis. Their, their, uh, their huge enemy, kind of perennial enemy, the Philistines, led by Darth Vader, uh, are coming, and they're going to they're gonna fight with Israel at Michmash, right? And so Saul's his camp at Gilgal, and, and Samuel sends a message to Saul. He says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come in seven days. I'm going to offer the sacrifice so it will cover the blessings. So you'll be blessed as you go into battle. Now, Saul is greatly outmanned, outgunned, outweaponed, right? He's at a huge disadvantage. And so he's, wait, he's telling his men, hey, in seven days, uh, Samuel's coming, and, and the blessing of God will be with us. And I know they're, I know they're bigger than us, I know they're stronger than us, and they're more they're weaponed than, than we are, but God's going to be with us, and Samuel's going to come in seven days, and so everyone's getting nervous because more and more Philistines are coming to Michmash, their armor's getting bigger and bigger, uh, Israel's looking smaller and smaller, and, and so the men are getting more and more nervous, but they're counting on Samuel coming. It gets to day seven, Samuel hasn't come yet. God has been very clear with Saul, wait till Samuel comes to offer the sacrifice. Saul's getting nervous. His men are defecting. Everyone's getting scared. So he decides not to wait on God. He decides, okay, I'm going to offer the sacrifice. And this is not going to go well for him. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. This is not in your note sheet because there's a late ad. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you've got your apps, that'll be easy. If you don't have your app, I recommend table of contents. That's why God put it there. 1 Samuel 13. There's two Samuels. You want the first one. And chapter 13. This is critical. I want you to see. Now, now catch this. Sam, uh, Saul's a king. And when you're a king, there's greater consequences for your obedience or disobedience. You know, when, when Moses was leading the nation of Israel, all he does is hit the rock twice. He can't go in the promised land. If you or I hit the rock twice, nothing happens anyway. So it doesn't, you know, but when you're the leader, there's greater consequences for obedience or disobedience. It's just the way it works. And so this is an extreme example, but it helps us to understand in our life how important this waiting on God thing is. And so what happens in verse 7, 13, 7, we'll go to start at the beginning of the middle of the verse. Saul remained at Gilgal. So that's where Samuel had said, I'll meet you at Gilgal seven days. 
So he remained at Gilgal. All the troops with him were catching us quaking with fear. Right? They are really feeling outgunned. So he's waiting seven days, right? The, the time when you know, he gets up on the seventh morning. It's like seven days. He's not here yet. He's getting really nervous. Some of the men are going, hey, it's day seven. He's not come. Maybe he's not coming. And so they, they're, they're starting to defect. And so Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men are beginning to scatter. And so he said, hey, bring me the burnt offering. Now, this is not his job to be offering this. God had said, wait till Samuel comes, but, but he's just kind of jumping the gun. He's getting nervous. So he says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. So Saul offers up the burnt offering. And just as he's finished, when you know it, making the offering, Samuel arrives, and Saul went out to greet him. And so Samuel the prophet says, what have you done? And Saul said, well, I saw the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. And I thought, hey, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. I don't want to go into battle without the sacrifice. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel says, well, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. He was very clear. Wait until Samuel gets there. Don't go into battle till Samuel gets there and offers the sacrifice. God was really clear. He'll be there in seven days. And you have not kept the command that Yahweh, your God, gave you. Now catch this next line, powerful. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. For those of you who know what happens next, God's going to raise up the next leader. His name is King David. God promises David, I will establish your kingdom forever, which is why the Messiah is going to come through the line, came through the line of David. Saul didn't wait. Here's what I want you to catch. This was a test of God. This was not random. It's not just this happened this way. The Philistines happened to come, and Samuel happened to come on the seventh day. Just random. It wasn't random. It was a test. It was a test from God. Would Saul trust God and obey God even under difficult circumstances? Would he wait on God and trust God and carry out God's word, or would he resort to his own strength, his own ingenuity, his own plan, and strike out on his own? This was a test. And he said, if you'd pass the test, I would have established your kingdom forever because you're the kind of man I can trust the kingdom to because you will wait on me and you'll obey me and you'll let me lead in your life and even if it's tough, you will trust me and I know I can trust my kingdom to a man who will trust me. He said, but if you will not trust me, if you bail on me, if you live your life your own way, you be your own king, I cannot trust my kingdom. My kingdom's not safe with you. And he blew the test. And so look what God says. He says, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart, David. He's appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Mm -hmm. Men and women, here's what I want you to catch. Waiting is essential. 
if you want to live life on mission for God, if you want to experience God's preferred, uh, preferred future for you, for your marriage, for your family, for your finances, for your career, for your ministry, you have got to learn to wait on God. Catch this. It's not just a matter of what to do. It's a matter of when and how to do it. And when God gives a vision, it's not just about the what, it's about the when and the how. And so many times, we get ahead of God and we ruin his plan for our life. Because we're not going to put up with this job anymore. I hate this job. And I know God's promised me he's going to get me out of it, but it's not happening fast enough. And I'm going to take it into my own hands. This marriage is not healing fast enough. We want to have kids and we're not having them, and so we're going to take matter in our own hands. Our finances are a mess, and so this is what we're going to do. I want that boat. I know I can't afford it, but I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> hey, I got this vision for this ministry, and doggone it, no one else around here seems to care about it. And so I'm just going to make it happen. And all along, if we would really listen to you, hey, do you think God is telling you this is the time? If we're honest, we'd say no. But we're just so impatient. We're so frustrated. We feel like we've got to, like Saul, make something happen. And we get off course. And then when waiting is really important. Let me tell you why it's so important. When God calls you into a time of waiting, which is often painful, Catch this. It's either to prepare the future for you or to prepare you for the future. And both are important. I want to talk to you about both of them. Let's talk about preparing the future for you. You know, as followers of Jesus, as fallen human beings, we, we tend to be so myopic, right? We tend to think life is all about us. What we don't realize is that we are all called to play an important part in this epic, huge drama that God's living out. And so often when God calls us to wait, it's not about us. It's like, it's just not time for us to walk on stage and play our part yet. He's preparing the future. He's got a part for us to play. It's not time for us to play our part. Let me give you an illustration. In this passage, I think most of you or a lot of you will know that Jesus was crucified on Passover. How many of you think that was an accident? Out of 365 days, he just happens to be crucified on Passover. So what's Passover about? Passover is about this great deliverance. It's the, it's the most important day of the Jewish calendar. Because what happens in Passover is that God brings the 10th plague on the nation of Egypt. When Israel's in slavery, and he, the angel of death goes through the land and kills all the firstborn. And God says to the nation of Israel, so, that, so you don't die under this judgment, take the blood of a lamb, put it over your doorpost on the side of your house, and then you all stay indoors. When the angel of death comes over, he will see the blood and he will pass over. And because of that judgment of God, they were set free through the Red Sea and they become a nation. And so Passover was through the Passover they were not under judgment, and they were set free to be the new nation. This is why the most important event in Old Testament history is the redemption from Egypt. Right? 
And so, of course, that's a great story. But what we find out in the New Testament is Passover was a prophetic event. That Passover was an event that prophesied, just by the very happening, that one day a greater lamb would be sacrificed. That one day the blood of the greater lamb would be spread over our lives. That one day we would be rescued from a greater destruction. That one day we would be rescued not from Pharaoh and slavery to human labor. We would be rescued from the slavery of death eternally destroyed by God, by the blood of the Lamb. We'd be set free from Satan and from sin and from death itself to become a greater people of God who will rule with the King of Kings for all creation in a new nation. Right? So it was no accident that Jesus was crucified on Passover. It had to be Passover because it's telling a much larger story of what God's up to in the universe. In the same way, catch this, it is no accident that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. See, there are three great pilgrim feasts in the Israel calendar. God required all the Jewish men in the Old Testament to travel to Jerusalem three times a year. Three, three times. Three great feasts. First one's Passover. Second one's Pentecost. Third one's Tabernacles. Pentecost is called... It's a harvest celebration. It's a wheat celebration, the wheat harvest. It happens 50 days after Passover. It's called the Feast of Weeks. You have Passover, seven weeks plus one, which is why in Greek it's called Pentecost, 50, right? And so it's a harvest celebration. So when the Holy Spirit is going to come on the day of Pentecost, it's because God is starting the great harvest of souls for all of eternity in the movement of Jesus. And whereas, whereas Passover was a seven-day feast and tabernacles in the fall is a seven-day feast, Pentecost is a one-day feast. And on the day of Pentecost, tens and hundreds of thousands of Jews from around the world will descend on Jerusalem in this huge, massive complex called the temple that's capable of holding at least 100,000 people at one time. And they will descend there to worship the God of Israel and to seek him for the harvest. And on that day where Jews from all over the world is the day the Holy Spirit's going to come on 120 people and 100,000 people go, what is God doing? Something supernatural. And Peter's going to stand up and he's going to say, this is what it means. Jesus has been crowned king. He's resurrected from the dead. He is the Messiah of Israel. You need to repent and give your life to Messiah. And 100,000 people are going to hear the message of Jesus and they're going to leave next day on their Lear jets to go back around the world and take the message of Jesus. Something is going on. This is no accident. It happens on Pentecost. So if you're an apostle, and you're going, why are we waiting? It's day six, it's day seven. What's going on? Why do we have to wait? Hey, it's not about you. We are waiting for Pentecost. The Spirit has to come on Pentecost. You see what I'm saying? 
And so many times, God, why have you not provided my job yet? It's been four months. God, why have you not healed my marriage yet? It's been three years. God, why haven't you started this ministry yet? It's been burdened forever, and it's just it's not happening. God, why haven't you resolved it? Hey, God, why haven't you brought me my mate? I've been praying for years for a Christian spouse. I would like, I just don't understand. You know, God, you're just not, you're just not really listening to my prayers. Did you ever think it may not be about you? Did you ever think God may be up to something bigger? That God is going to rescue your son from drug addiction, but your son is not ready. There are four believers that need to come around him, and he's going to meet them. They're going to be the first authentic Jesus-following Christians he's ever met. And for the first time in his life, he's going to say, man, maybe there's something to this. And then he's going to come to Christ through their witness, and they're going to disciple him. And he's going to be called into ministry, and God's going to use him in amazing ways. And you can't figure out why it's not happening today. And God says, it's not about you. I am setting up your son to have an impact for the kingdom for the next 40 years. Amen. You see? So this is what I want you to catch is that often when God calls us to wait, it's not about us. God, why aren't you answering my prayers for a Christian spouse? He's like, I've got the person. They're just getting out of a very messy relationship. If you met them now, they wouldn't like you and you wouldn't like them. (laughs) Give me two years. See? So often we are so myopic not really, we are being called to play a part in a much larger story. And God is preparing the future for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, awesome, that's good. Okay, so now, many times, God is preparing us for the future. And that leads to number two. Number two, the second thing we need to understand when we're waiting is that prayer is vital. You know, what do you do in those times of waiting? When, when, when you're waiting on God to do something that needs to be done, uh, what do you do? How, how, do you, how do you handle a time of wait? Some of you are in a time of waiting right now. You're in, often times of waiting are painful times. You're out of work or you're single and you want to be married or uh, there's a ministry you want to start or... Your finances are not right. You're just kind of waiting, right? And it's like, God, why don't you end? One of the things that we need to do in times of waiting is we need to press into God. We need to seek God. And we need to seek him in prayer. And I want you to see this. 114, they come back. In 114, it says they all join together constantly in prayer. They seriously sought God every day. They're going before God. And you say, well, Mike, what are they praying for? I don't know for sure. Here's some of my guesses. I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think, number one, they're praying for courage. I mean, a month and a half before, these authorities just killed Jesus, and they were hiding behind locked doors. And now Jesus is telling them to go out there and tell everyone about Jesus. And like, last time we didn't do so well, right? So I'd be praying for courage. I'm, I'm guessing that. I'm sure they're praying for wisdom and success in this ministry, the assignment Jesus given but I'm going to guarantee you, one of the things they're praying for is they're praying for the coming of the Spirit. And you say, wait a second. Why would they be praying for the coming of the Spirit? Jesus already said the Spirit was coming. If Jesus said the Spirit's coming, he's coming. You don't need to pray for it. God promised it. Here's where we go wrong. 
we think when God has promised something, we're supposed to just sit back and wait. In the Bible, when God promises something, we see it time and time again, it's the time for us to hit our knees and begin praying that promise into reality. Let me give you an example. We won't turn there, but I want you to write on your Bibles or, or write uh, somewhere in your note sheet, write Daniel 9, 1 through 3. Let me give you a, story, a great example. Daniel, he's uh, taken from his homeland, conquered by a superpower of the day, Babylon, taken to there, goes into civil service in Babylon, 1,000 miles away from home, rises up through their, their, the ranks, becomes one of the leaders of Babylon. God used amazing ways. He's there his whole life, right? While he's gone, the city of Jerusalem is completely destroyed. Now, this was predicted by Jeremiah, the prophet. And so he's an old man now. He's reading his Bible one day, reading Jeremiah. And Jeremiah prophesied not only the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, but in 70 years, God would reestablish it. He would he'd bring the people back. And so, so uh, Daniel's getting out his calendar. He's going, man, it's got, I don't know exactly when this date starts, but it's got to be getting close. And so what would you and I do? That God promised... Seven years will be restored. Like we start maybe writing books or doing prophecy seminars, right? But this is not what Daniel did. If you read that passage, it's fascinating to me. Daniel reads the prophecy of Jeremiah. He reads the promise of God. And then it says Daniel began to pray and fast that God will fulfill his promise. And you're like, why? If God said it, isn't it going to happen? But what we miss is that prayer is how we partner with God to bring apart, to bring about God's preferred future. You see, God has wired the universe this way that our prayer is part of the way his prophecy and his promise is fulfilled. And so when there's something in your life you're waiting on God for, you need to be going for him and praying that future into reality. You need to be coming along and say, God, this is what you promised. You promised you would meet all my needs. And so I'm seeking you as the God of heaven to meet my needs. And I'm praying for that job. And I'm just going to continue to seek you. God, you promised me when my child was young that they, you, you, I had a prophetic word about this child that, that they were going to be used for your kingdom. And it's just so real and powerful. And they're not walking with you now. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to join with you and partner with you in praying that into existence. You see? And so part of our prayer is partnering with God to bring his preferred future into existence. But catch this. Part of what happens when we seek God in prayer is he prepares us for the future that he has for us. So the reality is often we are not ready for the future that we're praying for. And so God, use me as a leader. I want to be used. Well, frankly, if God put you in leadership right now, you would screw up everyone who's following. You're egotistical. You're leading for the wrong reasons. You got these wrong, crazy ideas, what it means to follow Jesus. And anyone who followed you would be in deep trouble. So Jesus has to do some surgery on you before you're ready to lead. You're praying, hey, God, would you bless us financially? We're so, we're so stressed out and we're just... We, and you know what? If God blessed you financially, you would forget the giver, and you would get into the gift, and you would buy your boat, and you'd go boating or motorcycling every Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, and you'd stop going to church, and you'd fall away from Jesus. 
He's not going to give it to you. You are not ready. Like you're not ready until you say, you bow the knee to Jesus and you say, everything I own belongs to you and I'm going to surrender all that I own and I'm going to give the first fruits off the top like you have taught. I'm going to honor you with giving like you've said and anything you want, it belongs to you. And God says, okay, now you're ready. I can now trust you. I couldn't trust you with finances before. You are botching what I gave you. You are so in debt. I've told you don't do that. You're so in debt. You're so materialistic. If I blessed you financially, you just go more in debt and become more attached to your materialism. So here's what I want you to catch. That many times what has to happen in prayer is God wants to prepare us for our future. He wants the same future for you that you want for you, but you're not ready for it. And so what happens as you go before, often when we go through times of waiting, it's painful, isn't it? I hate it. Anyone like waiting here? You're just like, oh, I just love to be in pain, man. I just, I love not knowing what's going on. I, what, I don't want to be in control. No, I like being out of control. And I like being in pain. I like not knowing what the future. Like, man, I got a counselor for you. Like, you are not normal, right? That's not normal. Now, what's normal is we want to know what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. We don't want to be like in left waiting. But here's what happens. When you're left waiting, it drives you to God. And you begin to come to God. And, you begin to, and at first, it just turns, drives you a little bit. But the longer you wait, the more painful it becomes. You get more focused. And pretty soon, you're on your knees saying, God, is there anything you want to say to me? Is there anything that I'm messing up? Is there any area in my life that's not surrendered to you? Is there anything you, you want to take? Are there any idols in my life? Anything going on that's keeping your will from happening? And as we begin to surrender to the, the leadership of King Jesus, he says, yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. Give me a great example. The Old Testament, there's a lady named Hannah. She doesn't have any kids. She's married to a guy named Elkanah. He's got two wives. The other wife's having babies, like popping them out like a baby factory. <laughs> In that day and age, you know, it's like a woman's, you know, her success was tied to how many kids, how many sons you have. And so that this other wife's making fun of her all the time, what a loser you are. And as time goes on, she's getting more and more desperate. And finally, she, she goes to, to pray at Shiloh one day, Tabernacle. She says, God, if you'll just give me a son, I'll give him back to you for whatever your purpose. Just give me a son I'll, for your purpose. I'll bring him back, be raised here at Shiloh. God says, I've been waiting for that. See, what would have happened if, if God would have answered her prayer two years earlier? She would have put, made her whole identity around her son. See, I've got a son now, so I'm worthy now, and I'm going to protect that son. I'm going to put my arms around that son. Nothing's going to hurt that son because that son is the key to my identity. I'm going to protect him from that world out there. No one's taking my son away. Like, we're going to keep him at home, you know, he's 55. He's my son. Right? <laughs> but instead... God brought her to a place of surrender, and she gave God her son named Samuel, and he, became, he grew up to be the great first prophet of Israel that we talked about today with King Saul, the start of a whole new era in Israel's history. Because it came to a place where she was willing to say, God, whatever I have is yours. And God said, I've been waiting for that. You see, men and women, we're, we're in God's waiting room, 
He is often waiting for us to come to a place where we lay down our idols and we surrender to him. And guess what? The moment we surrender, his spirit comes in, changes us. We become empowered to be a new person. And now God says, now you are the person you need to be to walk into the future I have for you. You are now ready to lead. You're now ready to have a family. You're now ready to be blessed financially. You're now ready to lead this ministry because you've surrendered and I'm king and now you can go on mission with me. So sometimes God is preparing the future for us. Sometimes he's preparing us for the future. Number three. The third statement is that the scriptures are critical. In this whole process that we've been talking about, during times of waiting, I'm, I'm very excited about this one. So, Father, it's a little bit tricky, a little bit, little bit headier, but very important. Um, one of the things that the apostles did during this time of, of waiting, they pressed into the Lord, right? What do you want us to do, God? And one of the things that God did is he spoke to them through scripture. And so what they realized, whether maybe Jesus had talked about this before he left, we don't know, or maybe they just discerned it from the Holy Spirit. But I want you to look at a, on, your, on your note sheet, a passage of Scripture. This was in the final episode of season one, Luke 24. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And it says, he said to them, to the disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled. So in other words, before I was crucified, I told you this, that everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the three major divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So I told you, remember, before I was crucified, I told you I was going to have to die and be beat up and, and crucified, and then I was going to have to rise, and you didn't get it. He says, so, he says, this is what he's talking about, and he says, and he takes them back now, and he's going to do a Bible study with them. And what he's going to do, he's going to show them that the whole story of the Bible is all leading up to him. He's the hero of the story. And all the prophecies and the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets were all pointing about him. So he takes them back. He's going to show them how to read their Bibles. And so look what it says. Luke says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And we're going to see this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as you read through Acts, you wonder, how do these guys get so smart? Every time they're seeking God in a major decision, they're turning to the word of God, and they seem to know what to do based on the word of God. Well, how they, how they learn that? Like, if you go back and read some of the Messianic Psalms, you go, like, how'd they get this out of that? Have you ever looked back? But here's one of the things I, think, I believe Jesus helped them to understand, that especially with the Psalms of David, that David was to be the father of the Messiah. He was the prototype of the Messiah. And so what Jesus helped them to understand is that the life of David was a prophetic life. Just like Passover was a prophetic event, what happened here was speaking something greater there. The life of David is a prophetic event. That as David goes through his suffering, as David is persecuted by his enemies, as David is saved by God and vindicated, this was all prophetic of the greater son of David that would have one come, who'd suffer by his enemies and be vindicated by God and saved. And so this is why in many of the Psalms of David, that the early church understood that this was a story of David's life, but it's speaking of a much greater fulfillment. Like we'll see a great example in Peter's first message on the day of Pentecost in a couple of weeks. That Dave, he'll talk about Psalm 16, verse 7, where David says that, that, that uh, God will not let his Holy One 
suffer corruption. He will not leave him in Sheol. What David means in his original context is God will not let me, the king, suffer defeat in battle and be killed. That's what he's talking about. But Peter comes and says, because he was a prophet, he was speaking of something much greater, of the Messiah who would come and not go into Sheol and be left there and suffer corruption, would be raised from the dead. See, the life of David was a prophetic life. And so in this passage, whether Jesus showed him or the Holy Spirit showed him, they go back to Psalm 69 and Psalm 110, both Psalms about David being persecuted by his enemies, about God vindicating him, about removing the enemies from office, and then God replacing them. And they see in that this prophetic thing that this was talking about Judas. And so inspired by the Holy Spirit, they know now that one of the things they need to do while they're waiting is they need to replace Judas. And this is so important because now there's 12 apostles from the new Israel to represent the the resurrection. Here's the point. In our lives, one of the things that's most important in times of waiting is we're not only seeking God in prayer, but we are turning to the word of God and saying, God, is there anything you want to say through your word to me personally or that you want to say to me that I need to do to prepare for that future that's coming. And one of the ways that God will lead you in times of waiting is through his word. He will speak to you and say, trust me, I've got this one. He may say, hey, reach out here, do this. But God will speak to you through his word to affirm this time of waiting, to give you direction in the time of waiting, to give you a specific direction at times of what he wants you to do in this time of waiting that will prepare you for the future and the future for you. And so as they turned to the word of God, they were able to appoint the last apostle, and now the table is set for the coming of the Spirit. Their hearts are prepared. The time is right. The day of Pentecost has come. The apostle, the 12th apostle has been chosen, and they are set, and they're ready for the fire to fall. And they are ready for the day of Pentecost, for that mighty sound of the wind to fill the room like a hurricane, for the fire, the tongues of fire to come down on their head. They have prepared themselves. They have waited on God. It is the right time, the right way, the right message, and God is going to move, and 3,000 people are going to come. A mighty harvest of God is going to come on the day of Pentecost, right on schedule, right according to God's plan. And it's all because they learned to wait. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is these leaders, this early church, they were great waiters. We're going to watch time and time again. In crisis, they go to God. They go in prayer. They turn to his word. They listen for the spirit. God, what do you want me to do? And Philip the the Ethiopian is going to... God's going to speak to Philip. Philip, go down to this road by the Damascus gate, and I'll tell you what to do when you get there. All right. This high power Ethiopian uh, head cabinet position there, reading from Isaiah. I don't understand this. The Spirit says, go up and talk to him about that passage. Tell him about the Messiah. And later on, we see the Apostle Paul, and he's going to be He's going to say, hey, I'm trying to go to Ephesus and share the gospel. He said, but the spirit of Jesus wouldn't let me go. And then I tried to go this way, and the spirit of Jesus wouldn't let me go. And so I'm going, God, what do you want me to do? And I have a dream that night, and there's a guy from Macedonia saying, come to Europe and help us. All right. And we're going to watch this time and time again. 
time of crisis, times of decision. The early church is not going to get ahead of Jesus. King Jesus is their leader. The Spirit is their guide. They're going to come and say, you tell us what to do. You tell us when to do it. We're coming under your leadership and under the leadership of King Jesus and the power of the Spirit. They're going to go out and change the world. And this is what you and I are called to do. Not to get ahead, not to follow behind, but to come under, to learn to wait as Jesus models for us that we can go out and move into God's preferred future for our lives under the power of his spirit, and we can change the world. Amen? Let's pray. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to give you a couple of minutes just to spend some time with the Lord. We've talked about this. My, my guess is a message like this, there's emotions all over. Some of you are in the midst of a waiting time, and you just feel like God has spoken to you powerfully of just encouraging you to wait, not to get ahead. You're just encouraged today. Others of you may be looking right now, and you're saying, man, I have so screwed up my life because I've not waited on God. And I see myself. I'm more like Saul. I'm just always doing things too fast. And here's, I just want to say to you that God loves you, and no matter where you've been, it's never too late. It's never too late. And even when we've made stupid decisions in the past and messed up our life, you know, God can take your life and put you back on that potter's wheel. He can heal that. He can redeem that. He can use that. And so I don't want you to be discouraged today. I want you to know that you have a God who loves you, and he can take all the mistakes of your life, and he can turn it into good and use you powerfully in the future in the very places where you've been hurt where you've been victimized, where you've not listened, where you've rebelled. He can turn that into a powerful story of his redemption that he's going to use with others. But it requires that we come under his leadership and learn to wait. And so maybe you need to talk to God about your past. Maybe you need to listen to him about your present. But we're going to give you a couple of minutes right now as the band plays this beautiful instrumental over you. I just encourage you to wait, knowing what Scripture says, that those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And so let God breathe his life into you right now as you wait on him. Hey, we are ready to go. The fire is ready to fall, amen? That uh, last three weeks, we've learned there's four things that we need to learn before we're ready to go life and mission. First, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we need to bow our knee to King Jesus, King over creation. Number three, we be clear on the atonement that we are truly forgiven and free. And today we've learned. We need to, to learn to come and wait on him for our leadership. And, as we, and now we're ready to go on mission. Now we're ready for the wind of howl through this place. Now we're ready for the fire to fall. Next week we're going to come and we're going to talk about the time when fire fell. We move in a whole new era, the era of the kingdom of God, when the spirit of God was poured out on his people, not just a few, not just a few prophets, but in all his people. We're moving into a new era, a new age, an age where God moves in all of us. We become a temple, the Holy Spirit. We're filled, empowered, led by his spirit. So we're calling as followers of Jesus. I hope you can be here next week as we wait for God's fire to fall. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week. <laughs>